In every generation, there are the chosen ones, the fanboys, the observers, the keepers of useless trivia. They alone must stand against the forces of television drama tropes. They are continuous play. Oh, come on. Stake through the heart, a little sunlight. It's like falling off a log. Welcome to Continuous Plays, The Art of Slaying, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective featuring Brian Thomas. Don't make fun. I work long and hard to get this promise. And Jay Newcastle. Just because this is never going to work, there's no need to be negative. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the copyright of Fox Television Studios and any discussion of the characters, episodes, or music is strictly for entertainment purposes only. Welcome to the Art of Slaying, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. And we're here to talk about Season 3, Episode 1, Anne, written by Joss Whedon. We pick up a few months, summer break, after the events of the end of Season 2, and the Scooby gang, Xander, Willow, and Oz specifically, are fighting local vampires without the help of the Slayer. Buffy, on the other hand, is in Los Angeles, going by her middle name, Anne, and working as a waitress. She bumps into an old acquaintance by the name of Lily, who we previously knew as Chanterelle in the lame vampire cult from Lie to Me, and she tries to blow it off. However, as fate would have it, Buffy is drawn into a sinister plot by a group of demons masquerading as some sort of religious organization that drain teenagers of their youth. Buffy tries to help Lily find her missing boyfriend, but the both of them get sucked into the demon dimension. Fighting her way out, Buffy saves Lily and many others closing the gateway permanently and accepting her fate once again Buffy heads back to Sunnydale and that's the plot summary for season three episode one and Brian right out of the gate I want to ask you something here how did you feel about the way they picked up with season three in time specific order with what had been going on previously on Buffy well, I like how they did it. You know, they set a precedent between seasons one and season two that Buffy does go away for the summer anyway. Now, obviously, this is a little different. She didn't go to her dad's for the summer. This time, she actually ran away, and nobody has actually heard from her since. I like how they had it going on where, you know, even though Buffy's not there, the Hellmouth still goes on. And it's a little bit of a departure from what they did with season one. With season one, they between seasons one and two they kind of did a thing where almost because of the master's death the hellmouth ceased to do anything over the summer here it's active you know the master's gone we got totally different thing hellmouth is still active this summer and you've got you know willow and xander and oz and giles still basically fighting the demons that are out there because they've come to take it on as part of their duty as well uh, and I liked how that was. And I liked that we did get to see where Buffy ended up and what she was doing and, and the struggles that she was going through. I thought it was well done. I did too. It was really neat. And I mean, that was the question I had is where is she going on that bus at the end of Becoming? And as it turned out, you know, we said she, you said she didn't spend her summer with her dad, but she actually went to Los Angeles. Now it is a big place. So I guess it's not hard to hide, but she really just camps out there. And I, you know, Brian, I like the setting for other reasons, too, because I think right out of the gate, they set a tone for what the season's going to be about. It's going to be about picking up and moving on. And 
I think all of us at some point feel that, right? And maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's losing someone, but like I talked about at the end of a coming, if life is about necessary losses, the things we give up to move on, we have to learn how to accept that things are never the same. You know, and the trick is to remember that you are who you are and that can't be denied. For Buffy, you know, trying to stop being the slayer is impossible for her. Even when she runs from it, it finds her in some way. And I really liked how they addressed that immediately here in the beginning of season three. I liked it too. And, you know, I, I like that, you know, she had a summer where she did get, you know, she did get away from it for a while, but you know, she had to know it would eventually come back and, and give her the calling. And I think that she was trying as hard as she could not to have that happen, but it does. Now I have one major problem though, Jay, with, with this. Now I'm not sure if they specifically ever said that she went to LA when she ran away, but if she did, wouldn't people know her there? Cause that's where she came from. It would depend on what part of LA she was in. I mean, you have to assume she came from, when she lived there before a more well-to-do place than where she hangs out. I mean, the, where she hangs out in LA with the one little block we see her inhabit while, you know, in this episode, looks a lot like the back side of the seedy part of LA that Angel hangs out in, in his show, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it doesn't look like the same place where Henry high would have been. Maybe the Henry high from the ghetto at the end of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, but not the one in this show's arc. And I, I think that's the thing is that she went somewhere familiar, but also somewhere big enough where she could hide. And that makes some sense, too. But, you know, there's always somebody who's got to be able to recognize you, no matter what side of town. L.A. is a big city, but I'm sure there were losers and idiots. I mean, you, you know, there were from Pike and uh, and Benny. They were losers and outcasts. So you'd imagine they'd probably been to the seedy side of town at some point. So it's just kind of weird that nobody had. She'd been there for probably estimated two, two and a half months, and nobody had seen yeah, her. Yeah, well, better yet, why hasn't her dad tried to find her or her mother? I'm a little perplexed at the fact that there was no missing persons report filed. Even though everyone involved knows what happened, it is a little bit of a stretch. We have to kind of swallow that if we're going to go with this story, right? Well, I don't know about that. I mean, Joyce now knows that Buffy is the Slayer, so she's not going to put out an APB on her because she knows she can take care of herself. She's hoping, and she knows what the last conversation they had was, so her hope is that she comes back. As far as her father, if they didn't make any plans for the summer, you know, then why would he be looking for her? He doesn't seem to be very involved in her life. That's a good know? point. They they don't they just drop him in and out of there occasionally, and they haven't talked about him much at all, really, since the, the beginning of season two when she came back for the summer and he had bought her too many shoes. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I don't know. I like I said, I don't think anyone would put out an APB for her. They're all looking for her, and, and you you see with Giles, he's looking for her via supernatural means, um, but. Yeah, I think Joyce is just mostly heartbroken because of the fact of her last words being, you walk out of that house, don't you come back, and that's exactly what happened. So she's dealing with that and hoping that somehow Buffy will reach out to her. So Yeah, well, we, we yeah. can get to that when we get into talking about the, the returning characters, I guess. But if we're going to do this, Brian, the way we do things here in the Art of Slang, let's talk about you know, the new characters who we get to meet in this episode. There aren't a lot of them. 
No, I mean, there, there's quite a few new characters, but only two of them really get any screen time or knowledge. And Well, I guess three, if you count uh, Lily's boyfriend, but we're not going to. Um, we'll start with the guy who gets the most screen time, and that's Ken. Ken is uh, interesting. He basically goes up to Buffy uh, while she's roaming the streets after Lily has confronted her, and, you know... They bump into each other, and he's handing out pamphlets about uh, his little group where they help the hopeless. You know, kind of like the angel theme there. We help the hopeless, and we we help you get your life back together. And know that you're special. Blah blah blah. The the typical, uh, I guess you would call them cults uh, pitch. The cult pitch. You know, we'll help you get your life back together. Type. Thing. Yeah, it's definitely that. <laughs> There's a lot of underpinnings there. Like it's very generic, but there's a lot of religiosity tied to that little group. You can tell, and the, you know the theme there is that you never, you know, all those groups. There's a reason we distrust them, and for whatever reason, Joss has decided to let's have a little commentary about this. There's a reason we distrust these groups. Sometimes they're not always in it for your best interest. They're in it for your best interest as they see them, and. I did like the way the guy played it, though, because he played... I'll tell you what I got off of him. I was like, this guy could have been a stand-in for Ted, you know, because he has that same kind yeah, of button-down yeah. Ward Cleaver thing going on, but he's there's also more to him than meets the eye. You almost... I think we've been conditioned enough on the show to sort of know that about him when we meet him, and so automatically you, you realize, well, which one of these things doesn't fit here, and what's new? Well, that, that can't go well. Right, and I like how he played it too. It was a very, you know, nice guy on the street just trying to help people out. But you you could see there was something, there's an ulterior motive there. I mean, I think it was quite obvious right away that he had some sort of ulterior motive. Now, we didn't really get to know what that was right away, but I like how they kind of set it up with all these different older people walking around the street saying, I am nobody, I am no one. And you're kind of le left thinking, okay, what's, what is this all about? And as we find out, you know, Ken is not human at all, big shocker. Uh, he's a demon who, who lures these healthy young kids into, who have really lost their way into his little group and then basically puts them into slavery. Yeah, they, they're taken to a dimension where time moves. What was his rate? It was like one, uh, you know, a uh, hundred years will pass um, here on, on his side, but it's a day over on the other side. And he's basically using them for cheap labor. And they come across and they, they mine something, or I don't know what they're trying to get at. He's got all kinds of wacky minions who are in some real scary looking stuff. But yeah, that's their whole purpose. Yeah. It, uh, it is kind of odd because they don't ever really tell us what they're trying to do there. They're just using them for labor. And like you said, we, we don't really know what they're, trying to get are they looking for a buried treasure are they trying to uncover some demon secret they're searching for i we never know they're just basically put to work it's almost like these people like to be in power and that's their way of using the kids i don't know it was an interesting well they thing. use people that no one else will miss for the most part you know right. it's, it's the Absolutely. homeless it's the young it's the you know it's the youth on the street essentially so it's I guess that's a metaphor for like gangs and things like that. You know, they take people nobody else wants. Mm -hmm. They get what they can out of them. When they're done, they just kind of dump them. You know, and I, that's really what yeah, this was all about too. I mean, that's how I read it. I don't know how you saw it. 
Yeah, I, I don't know that I, I put it uh, as far as that together, but yeah, I think that's uh, pretty much what they're going on here too. And we find out the, uh, how Ken is getting uh, the people, you know, obviously with the pe- the pamphlets on the street, but he's also being fed uh, healthy kids' names that he can target by a blood drive uh, center and a nurse who is actually there. She basically writes down all sorts of different test results. And then if they're in the favor of what Ken likes, she writes down that they're a potential candidate. Ken then probably takes those names, finds them and lures them in or, or, or studies them or, or whatever he does to get them in there. But the nurse was interesting because right away when, when Buffy and Lily show up at the uh, blood drive looking for Ricky, who is uh, Lily's boyfriend that we really don't need to spend much time time on um she's very skeptical of uh both of them from the get-go and i think because she probably just gave the name of ricky to ken uh so she knows where he is or what's happened but it's an interesting thing you know right away something's wrong with her yeah i mean she's totally playing nurse ratchet the, the whole way i mean and the best thing she has is with buffy when Buffy is has broken into the center after the night and starts to figure this out by flipping through things, you know, and she you know, she comes upon Buffy and you know Buffy pretty much said you know she's like what are you just like I'm going through your secret files you know it's 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 a good good moment of humor you know but other than that I mean she's just the thing that is feeding Ken that that whole story really is the secondary story to what's really going on here. And uh, and we'll talk about that more as we go forward. But I did like her as a character. I thought it was a neat way. Evil evil has to have help on the other side, which I think is funny in this universe here. And we've talked about that a lot at different times in the show, Brian, but evil almost always corrupts or co-ops somebody from the human side that's just trying to make a quick buck or maybe is a little dark in their own heart. you know. And I did like that. I thought it was neat that they again, called back to something to remind us of what world we were in. Yeah, I like that too. And it's really a theme that goes on throughout this series as well as a lot in Angel. You'll see that there are humans behind a lot of the demons' uh, actions and and helping them out. So I I like that little play. I think it's good. Uh, It's good to introduce. Um, because, you know, demons can't roam around freely, right? They (laughs) can only disguise themselves so much, as as Ken says. Um, you know, we get a bunch of returning characters as well. Uh, obviously, we got our core four, but one, the one I really liked in this episode was Larry. I love you know, it. he's only there for one split second, but basically, he's talking about that the school's back in session and he's talking to his teammates for football, saying, you know, we're going to be great if we can, you know, keep up hyped and keep disciplined and not have as many mysterious deaths this year. <laughs> I love that line. I thought that was classic. That was great. I do like Larry. Larry Bigby that plays him. It dropped in and out of the show, much like Jonathan is and some of the others. He's a familiar face. So, again, they give us something that, oh, that's Larry, you know. And remember the last time we saw Larry was when he sort of confronted Xander and they had a. Uh, the big revelation with one another, we shall say. And so, but it's good to see Larry again. And I did like that line too. I thought it was hilarious. It's a good bit of humor. Yeah. And, you know, I like that they drop all these in there. I love seeing, you know, I guess I never really caught it most of the times when I'm watching, but now that we're doing the podcast, I love catching those little things and Jonathan here and there. Jonathan's used a lot more than I remembered him being used. I'll tell you <laughs> that. Danny Strong yeah, got some I think good it's work. Hilarious. Yeah. 
I think it's hilarious, you know. Uh, you know, moving into the the kind of the uh, uh, parent roles, we got Joyce and Giles here, and and the first thing we find out, you know, Giles is really doing everything he can to locate where Buffy is. He's worried about her. He wants her to come back, and but he's doing it the wrong way. He's not really understanding that, you know, if Buffy's run away, most of the time, most likely she's wanting to get away from her her duty, and he thinks that she's out somewhere else slaying. And so he's picking up all these leads from people he know in the in the uh, supernatural world, and tra- chasing each one of them down. And you see that the the rest of the gang really notices that he's just chasing dead ends, but it makes him feel better. You know, it makes him feel like he's being useful and trying to find her. Brian, the thing I love about this is because it furthers that role that Giles plays in Buffy's life. He's the surrogate father figure now, completely. You know, that's where he is. And he wants to just get her back to work. You know, let me just get her back here and she's fine. She's obviously out doing the things she does somewhere else. Which means, just like a lot of fathers of teenagers, especially teenage girls, because all my friends in high school used to say this all the time, my dad has no idea what I really am doing or what I want to do. He wants me to go do the thing he thinks I'm really great at, but he's not paying attention to what's going on with me. And the thing is, for Giles, is he is missing the boat. And the fact that she made the ultimate sacrifice, uh, but next to giving of her own life to that point at the end of last season, at the end of the school year. And the fact that she needs time to deal with that is something that either because of his relationship with Angel and what happened with him and Angelus, or because he's just blind to it, he is not accepting and I like that. I like the fact that they play with it, that Giles is trying so hard to locate her, just like a father would, and the fact that that is pushing him into a different realm and a different edge. And I, re- I really did like it, because he seemed so incredibly desperate. And that's something we don't see out of Giles very much. I really like the way that he played it. Yeah, I, I liked it too. I thought it was very, really well done. He's obviously very worried. And I really like the interaction that he has with Joyce here. Joyce is, is in this episode for a very short time as well. But um, basically, she has some really strong words in this one. She's very worried that if she leaves her house, she'll miss Buffy's call, like we talked about earlier. She's just, you know, she, her, the last thing she said to Buffy, they argued, and she told her to, if she leaves, she can't come back, and now she won't leave because she wants to know Buffy's okay. I don't know how well that bodes for her, you know, her uh, uh, museum, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. as I guess when she owns it, she can do whatever she wants. But she has a really telling uh, statement in here. She's just learned all about what Buffy does, all about who all her friends are to her, what Giles does, what Buffy is. And, you know, Giles says, you know, Joyce, you can't blame yourself for Buffy running away. And she flat out looks at him and says, I don't. I blame you for it. And it was a strong statement that she made. And you could tell Giles gets a little shocked and hurt by it, but he knows he must take that. Yeah, because he knows she's right. You know, he's had this secret relationship with her. He's been guiding her and all of that. Nothing Joyce says to him is is untrue. 
And he knows that. And so all he can do now is try to get her back. Because, again, he's just like, I just got to get Buffy back here. Just get her back here. Everything will be okay. Not realizing that the answer is kind of obvious as to where she is. It would make, it would make sense that they would have gone there. But because everybody's kind of blind to what is happening, they're not looking in the right place. They're not looking for the right reasons. But I did like the interplay between them. It's very brief, but it, it really says a lot, and it'll tell you a lot about what's coming up. Yeah. You know, getting into, you know, kind of our core group of characters, we like to call the core four, but also we add in here Oz and Cordelia because they've really become part of that tight knit group. They're these, you know, sub- they're really these supplemental a- musicians that Guns N' Roses added after, there after you the go. first door. We all know this. The keyboardist and the tambourine. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Uh, uh, you don't get a ton with these guys because this episode really isn't about them, but what you get are some interesting facts. Obviously, we, we stated before that, you know, they're all out hunting in Buffy's place. But you you get some other uh, key things. They don't talk about Buffy uh, in the past tense. They treat her like she's just, you know, off on a vacation somewhere and she'll be back any time. And, you know, Willow has the past tense role when Xander starts talking about, you know, when Buffy was here. You know, she's like, no, no, it's the past tense role. We don't talk about that. It, it's interesting. And you, you, of course, get the glimpse into... Uh, all of their feelings on what is really going on. Xander's upset. And I, I think I, I like that a lot. Well, I, I want to say this just to dial it back for a second here. Remember the, the beginning of season two, we, you, know, you said before that everything had kind of been dead in Sunnydale because the master was dead over the summer. And he talked about how bored he was. Remember that? He's like, I can't wait till you know Buffy gets back. We get some slayage going on. You know, he's talking with Willow about that. And she's like, are you out of your mind? And now Obviously, things are, have still carried on, and they've kind of accepted this responsibility. I like the fact that our group, who had grown so much at the end of, or about through season two, and had transformed into what they were, still was playing those roles, but they still had their own identities. You know, they still had their own hangups, their own things. You know, Xander is on one hand is worried where in the world is Buffy what's going on what happened and then he's excited about seeing Cordelia again you know um you have Willow who's really kind of the I guess she's in charge in the uh, she's in charge in some ways but clearly physically there's only so much she can do but she's trying to you know she uses that little pun on the vampire that gets away and she's she's trying to be Buffy but she knows she's not you know and she's still Willow she's excited about school and homework you know, I love how they bring Oz back. Oz is having to repeat the 12th grade, and this is great. <laughs> remember when I didn't graduate? Yeah, but I thought you were going to summer school. Yeah, remember when I didn't go? I mean, that was, that was <laughs> hilarious. That was great. So they bring all that back in, and it lets you get reacquainted with all those characters really quick, but it, you realize that everything you've learned so far is still in play here. It still matters. Yeah, and I like that too, though. They just give you a little bit, but you, you got Xander and Cordy basically back to bickering with each other, and then he's basically she saves Xander from being attacked by a vampire, and then it's all make out and back to being in love with each other. Oh yeah, because when they meet at the when when they get on the, when they meet at the school, like they they're both talking about, oh, I can't wait to get a hold of her or get a hold of him, and they see each other like hi hi, and then they just run away from each other because they don't know how to be in a real relationship. Right, those people can't function like that. But he stakes a vampire, she falls on top of him, and it's make out city. Yeah, well, more power to him. My question is, if he stakes the vampire, how come Cordy doesn't go through that stake as well? 
I don't know. <laughs> Does the stake disappear magically? Because it was pointing up and she was on top of the vampire when it dusted. Anyway, I, I like the the short but brief interactions that we have with our main characters just to tell us, you know, they're still around, what they're doing, what they're up to, and what their lives are like. But really, Jay, this is a very Buffy-centric episode. And it really focuses on two characters throughout this episode. Lily, who we knew, as you said in, in the intro, as Chanterelle from the Lie to Me episode when she was in the Vampire Cult. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer, obviously. Uh, those two are the focus of this. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic, and I like it. And it really helps, Lily really helps Buffy realize that she needs to be who she is and accept it. And I like that because we'll get this more and more as we go through the series that Buffy wants to abandon her role, but then something makes her realize that this is what she is and she accepts it fully again. It's it's an interesting dynamic and I like how we get to see different people bringing that out. In well, her. yeah, they, they always use another person usually to draw Buffy back in or into something. That, that's a common thing they've done on this show already and they'll keep doing it. I like the fact that it was a character that, you know, when you look at her, I didn't remember who she was initially. When I was first watching the show, I was like, who, who's that? You know, and then they do the whole, do I know you bit? And I'm like, are we supposed to know who this is? And I love how she just calls it out and explains it for everybody. Oh, I was in that vampire cult that one time. And they had that little back and forth about the exotic names and all that stuff. And it immediately draws an impression on your mind like, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was in that lie to me. So you, you're starting to. You know, piece all this stuff together, and she's really the catalyst to get Buffy moving forward. Because that's the thing is when evil or a problem is broad, Buffy has a hard time latching into it. But when it's personal, when you personalize it for her, then it becomes her cause, so to say. Like for be for. Buffy being the Slayer is a very personal thing. We've talked a lot about that on our podcast previously, and I think that's really smart by the writing team to remember that, that it wouldn't just be, I'm in trouble, help me. Okay. And she goes and helps her. Like she has to really be goaded into this by Lily. And they, I thought they had a really good interaction with each other. It's two women essentially on the whodunit trail through the seedy part of Los Angeles. What I, what I like too is that um, they picked a character who wasn't really a main focus of the Lie to Me episode. She was in the, the main group with the two guys, but she really didn't have a whole lot to do there other than, oh, we like vampires, you know. The other two were really the focus, Billy and, and, uh, and the other gentleman were the focus of that group. So I like that they brought in her because she's a character that normally you just cast off and never think about again. So having her come back and be the one recognized, I like that. Getting a little more backstory on that was kind of cool as well. And yeah, you're right. She's She is the catalyst, and I, I love her interactions with her. You know, Ricky's missing, and who does she go to? She goes to Buffy because she knows what goes on. She knows the that there's more than just an underside of that city, that it, there are demons and vampires and everything else, and that if her boyfriend, who is very punctual and always where he says he's going to be, is missing, then she fully suspects that Buffy can help her, and I like well, that. Well, I don't know that she knew so much that the demon stuff is going on. You could probably make that argument because she seems to accept it quickly, but I do know that she goes to Buffy and says specifically to her, you help people. I've seen you do this. So she knows that supernatural stuff at least is around. I don't know that she knows exactly what's happened. She's just curious. I do have right, a question. But she knows 
she knows vampires exist because she's seen them with her own eyes. So. Right. I do have um, a thing about Ricky, though. Yeah. If he's always so darn punctual, why can't he hold a job? You know, like a guy that's the, that on top of well, things there, probably... There's punctual is, and there's lazy. <laughs> Good point. You know, you could still be on time for everything that you do. I mean, think about it. They go around and they party and whatever. So, uh, yeah, he's on time for that, but uh, he's also lazy. Okay, good point. Good point. But anyway, I I do like the fact, though, that all it takes is, again, for her to personalize it, for Buffy to really get into research mode and start figuring it out and that you know she saves this old man from getting run over it's one of the first i'm no one lines she goes back and finds him the next day and he's like drank a bottle of drano or something which is really disgusting but she sees this half of a tattoo that he and lily had you know forearm tattoos you put them next to each other and it's their two names and he's his half of it you know and that's how ken gets lily in he's like oh i know ricky he talks about you all the time you know and then uh it, once he gets her on the other side, he lets her know, you know, he talked about you even after he forgot his own name, you know. So clearly, they, Ricky and Lily were very special to one another. So that wasn't just false. I did like the fact that there was some real weight to that relationship, even though we saw very little of it and we just heard her talk about it. A lot of times you hear that and you're like, yeah, y'all are Starcross lovers, whatever. But really, they, they were. And that, that is kind of sad, too, in some ways, because she really loses a lot in this episode. Yeah, you're right, and and I like that too because uh, you know she she and I like her explanation of how she goes about things. You know, she tries different things, changes her name to fit what's going on, and and just lives vicariously as a free, you know, freeloader who just next what's the next hip thing for her to do and and so i like her explanation of that but i really like too when buffy asks what do they call you at home she doesn't want to talk about yeah it. it shows that you know she was she's she's had a rough life and and something's going on but that i think that's also a thing that they can connect on because buffy is at a point right now where she thinks mom has abandoned her by telling her to leave and because she's the slayer and i think that helps connect them as well because they both feel like they're outcast from their home the the point there is you you may think your home life is really bad but until you meet someone who truly has it worse than you you never really appreciate what you had i think that's part of the thing that pushes buffy back to sunnydale because clearly she can operate as a slayer without anybody's help or guidance she could just stay in la she could move to new york she could go to cleveland for instance but no she goes back to sunnydale because she realizes what she that she did have things to leave behind there and they're worth going back to on some level yeah what i really liked about buffy too in this one is you could see that she's really really struggling with what happened i like the dream sequences she has i like the dream where uh angel and her are on the beach and you know it's just a nice little touch and and you could tell she's you know happy angel's holding him and then he lays the the you know how did it feel when you kill me line on her and boom she wakes up and you could tell she's just that's what she's running from is trying to get away from what she did to angel and i like the other dream sequence too when she comes back home looking for the gang and she's running through the school and nobody's there and you know angel says 
you know, or she says, well, I'm looking for them all. Where are they? And Angel says, they're there. You just have to wait. Or so I don't know. No, know he, she says, I'm scared. No one's here. And he says, you should be. Yeah. It's a, it's a cool sequence. I liked it. What, what I liked, what I liked about them with the angel sequence is they told you right away, uh, Angel's not a character who's gone. He'll be back. Well, and we're not throwing him out yet. And I like well, that. Well, okay. I never read it that way. I just read it that, again, the emotional resonance of what that meant isn't going to be something that we just sweep under the rug here. I had a feeling we'd probably see him again because, that's, I mean, I know how TV shows work. Why would you bring someone back only for dream sequences? But here's the thing I really like about it, Brian. In, in that first dream sequence, they let you know very, just by the way it's done and the way it goes and the way they end it, that this isn't the first time she's had this dream. And that's a really hard thing to do. And I really applaud the production team and the, and the direction on that because so many times when they try to pop one of those in on, on a TV show in particular and they want it to have backstory and history, it, it always comes off as like that's the first time it's happened. I have always watched this, and especially this time, realizing that that's probably the hundredth night in a row Buffy's had that dream or some variation of it. You know, I like the fact that they got that across in one one dreamscape. They didn't even have to go to that second one for me because I realized that this was something that she, that weighed on her all the time. I agree that they didn't have to go to the second one, but I think I liked it because it was signaling that she's looking for her friends and doesn't know, you know she can't find them and I like that part. Well, also you remember know, this. She's trying to get back and and doesn't know if she can. Also remember this. Slayer her dreams in particular are prophetic, right? So is she having a memory or is she having a forward look? We don't know, and that's what makes it so intriguing. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Now, of course, Buffy, we mentioned she goes to the nurse's office, figures out what's going on, and then goes to confront Ken. What I like about the whole thing with Ken is, you know, Buffy takes everyone into that demon portal, and they're trying to make her work, and they're going up. They have the really weird-looking demon asking, who are you, to each of the ga- uh, characters. And if they say... I'm so-and-so, he attacks them. So they say, I'm no one. And no one gets to Buffy and she says, I'm Buffy Summers and I'm the Slayer. (laughs) And it starts attacking. And my favorite part of that is when Ken comes in and says, what is going on? The humans aren't supposed to fight back. That's not how it works. (laughs) I just love that whole sequence. He's like shocked that someone would attack them. That Again, crazy. that was another reason I kind of felt like he could been Ted, too. Because this is not by yeah. order. You know? And I do the fact that she just, I mean, they give Buffy a big action sequence here. She's swinging around on chains and doing stuff. And it's it lets you know that even if you don't practice being the Slayer on a regular basis, if you're the Slayer, you're the Slayer, baby. And, man, she, she looked great doing it. It was a great little sequence, great scene. And I... How they take out Ken is, I mean, it's violent, dude. She <laughs> lifts that. up the Conan the Barbarian door that's got the spikes, you know? Well, before that, I, I like before that, too, is when Ken is about to make an example out of Lily. She just pushes him off the ledge. Yeah, li- that's hilarious. an empowering moment for Lily, though, is that I am someone. Even though I don't even know right. or don't even want to recognize what my name is, 
I, I'm not going to stay here and die. And so she pushes him off the ledge. Of course, they're running out of there, and how they take out Ken, man, is, is violent. Okay, Buffy lifts up the door, the Conan the Barbarian door with all the spikes, you know, for, for going in the ground. And as she's, you know, getting everybody out from under there, she lets it go, and it drops, and it lands on Ken, and it, like, impales his two calves to the ground, which yeah. is, ah, uh, and he's got the demon face on. And then, of course, she thwacks him in the head with, like, some axe-like, you know, thing. And it's just, it's really violent. It's like, wow, Buffy just let that dude have it. I love her line there too. You know, want to see my impression of Gandhi? Thwap. That was your impression of Gandhi, Lily says. And she says, well, he was angry. Yeah. Yeah. That (laughs) was hilarious. And it was, I mean, it was only, only Buffy's humor would that work for, you know, but it is a good, it's a good resolve. And it was a fun action scene in a, in a show that's very down played with the action. There's not a lot of it. There's just a few little scenes. It's mostly just dialogue and people walking around. So it was good to get that action scene out at the end. And I liked, I liked the resolve of it. I do too, and I and I like how they ended things too. Where going back to the apartment, you know, Lily has nowhere to go, no money, and you know, Buffy basically says, the, you know, I paid the rent for the next three weeks. Here's my apartment; you can have it. And you know, I I talked to the boss, and you can start working at the restaurant. Uh, he's a little shady, but you know, it's a paycheck. And I like that whole sequence. She's given her her runaway life to another runaway, and I like Lily's response. You know, can I be Anne? You know, asking permission to 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 take over the the secret identity that Buffy's been holding on to. And I liked that a lot, and I thought it was good, a good way to do it. Yeah, it was really, it was a really, uh, well, it tied up all the loose ends of all of that. You know, we got rid of everything that had gone on for the summer, and Buffy goes back home, and of course Joyce is there, and you know, greets her with a hug, and it's it goes to black. So I mean, it, we're now back on this path to Buffy restoring her life. And in that process, she's not only saved a lot of people from being you know, slaves to demons and killed a lot of demons and stuff like that, but she's given someone else another chance because she is in desperate need of another chance too. Remember we talked about in Becoming that a lot of this is about, oh no, we talked about in I Only Have, I Only Have Eyes for You that a lot of that was about forgiveness and Buffy had to learn how to forgive herself for her mistakes, right? Well, part of that is learning how to help other people move on from their own mistakes. And she does that here with Lily. So Lily now becomes Anne and Buffy goes back to being Buffy in Sunnydale. Yeah. I like how it all ended up too. You know, Joyce uh, always cautious when the doorbell rings. So she's looking around trying to get there. She opens the door and there's Buffy and that's how we end it there. There she's back home. And now the, you know, the fun begins, the, the, the healing begins and, it was just a good, nice, it was a great episode for that. It really brought to perspective what Buffy was dealing with, what she was running from, and how she then came to grips with everything. And I like that about it. Yeah, that's really what the episode accomplishes in a lot of ways, is Buffy just coming to grips with who she is. And it, it, I love the way they didn't beat her over the head with it. You know, it, the opportunity arose, and even though she resisted at first, again, when it was personalized, she took on the task and... 
she's someone who is in need of recovery, you know, and in a lot of ways she'll never be the same, but she learns she just has to keep moving forward. And that's kind of what Buffy's doing here is uh, she's moving forward. I think another thing, Brian, we can really look at the group's resolve to keep up the fight while Buffy's away. I was kind of impressed with that. The fact that they kept it all up, that lets you know, none of that growth is going to be lost. We're not just going to, a lot of, a lot of lesser TV shows would let people do something for a season. They come back next year and it's a whole new thing, right? Right? Some do that episode to episode, Seinfeld. But you know, nobody ever learns anything, you know. But in this show, everything is cumulative, and I do like that about it. Yeah, I like that too. And it was it was good to see that even if Buffy's not uh, around, someone will be fighting the the supernatural to keep the, the community safe. And you know, I like that too. These guys have been spending the last two seasons or two years really learning everything that Buffy has to do and, and helping and helping and helping. And now it's up to them to kind of keep things safe. And, and it's nice to see them at least giving that an attempt, not very successfully, but giving it an attempt. Indeed. Well, Brian, we're at the part of the podcast where we give our dustings rating for this episode. So what is your dustings rating for season three, episode one, and well, I really like this episode. I think it was a strong Buffy-centric episode focused on her, you know, coming to grips with everything and the fact that she needed to go home and then going home. I liked that a lot. I thought, you know, we've said it before, when a, when an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer focuses on Buffy, it's usually really good, and this is no exception. I'm giving this a three dustings. I just really enjoyed watching this one. I really dig this one too, Brian. I give it a three dustings for all the reasons we've talked about and what you just said really really summed it up. It's a good Buffy-centric episode. It doesn't betray anything that's happened previously, but it moves us forward for it too. So we're ready for a whole new year of adventures. And I, here's the thing about it. Nothing of what happened here in terms of the fight against evil has any you know larger implications it looks like it doesn't these i mean we're not going to go back and fight more of this you know evil coven you know of uh youth uh eaters or whatever you want to call them right it's just the thing that moves the human part of the story along. That's what makes it so genius. Folks, we again, thank you so much for joining us for this episode in our Art of Slaying retrospective. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash Buffy. And you can also interact with us. If you've got a question about the show or a comment, leave us a note on our guest book on the website or send us email at mailbag at continuousplaypodcast.com. Until next time, for Brian, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to the Art of Slaying. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the copyright of Fox Television Studios and any discussion of the characters, episodes, or music is strictly for entertainment purposes only. Grr, arg. <laughs>